Welcome to Directly Correct, a feelings podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, nobody. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics, generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. How, how are you doing? How are you doing? Your voice sounds a little afraid. You sick? No. no. <laughs> you know what it's from, honestly? This is embarrassing, but uh, it's from uh, singing in the car. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, okay, what do you what are you belting out these days? I mean, it's it's the same hits from the you know high school years, um, some of the the good old emo songs that I think I've mentioned before on the pod. But oh, uh, I but love yeah. this. Yeah, man, it, it's it's really kind of sad, but people stop really collecting new music once high school, definitely college ends, right? Yeah, I mean, like. 18 years old is like the music that you will like for the rest of your life. And I feel like that's pretty consistent across human beings. And I don't know why that is, but it just seems like that's the music that you like forever. Is it because like emotions hit harder at those age or you know, just like everything's new and like that's sort of the surroundings? I don't know. Or maybe you should have time and money to spend on music at that age. I think it's I think it's the hormones. Like it just feels more amplified because you're like <laughs> raging on the inside. A lot of angst involved. Yeah. Or at least that's the case for me. Who knows? You know the comedian Nick Swartzen? I remember him. What was that movie he was in that was so funny? Grandma's oh, Boy? Grandma's Boy. Well, that he was, was very a, funny. He had a he had a funny bit about like uh going to grandma's house like in the year twenty sixty and like you know your grandma puts on like music now and it's like you know old timey sort of like forties music and like in you know forty years you can have grandma's be like here we go is bitch motherfucker <laughs> rap rap <laughs> I mean twerk twerk yeah. <laughs> it probably already happens today but yeah by then I mean it's kind of oh, do you ever see that movie Idiocracy Oh yeah, it's sort of like that. It's like, yeah, we're we're definitely trending in that direction in some ways. <laughs> oh, it, it, it's so palpable. Definitely idiocracy, right? Well, it, it's got. I, mean, I don't even. Know, I don't know enough about like genetics or anything to <laughs> prove the thesis of idiocracy. But it, I mean, it's kind of a scientific thesis, which is like, if and what was that song? Uh, Flagpole Sitta by Harvey. Harvey only Dane. stupid people are breeding. Yeah, only yeah. stupid people are breeding. It's like, I mean, do does humanity become stupider? I don't know. Is this an open <laughs> question? Not sure. Uh, well, I'm glad that you're uh, belting out your. What are you belting out? Like ELO? No, no. You said uh, emo music. Emo music. So, do you really want to go down this rabbit hole? Yes, I, yes. I, I don't okay. know. I don't know this about Cole. So, one of my one of my favorite bands just actually released a new song and it's very rare that something i used to like from a band and they release something like nobody has good new music you know like yeah. if they're a washed up old band they released a new song it's called sold and there's a band called taking back sunday and i used to love them and that song is awesome it's really good and like i haven't <laughs> they haven't released a good song in 15 years 
and they've released a lot of songs in those 15 years. So it's a uh, it's a oh wait so, so they had a uh, a dead period where like their release of music just didn't hit for you but yeah there's a new well, one for they, you they were they were like one of the most well known like pop punk emo bands of the time and then they as all of those bands did they fell out of existence <laughs> <laughs> because that music just became unpopular and then but they it's not like they did they were they continued to make music and i followed it off and on but i was like ah this isn't as good as the old stuff but then they made this new song it came out like a month ago and i've just been it, i've been jamming to it it's really yeah. good are they going to monroe tour in monroe <laughs> no i just mean like in the car and you know at home on youtube and stuff like that yeah i know but i want to see you crowd surf <laughs> you they, they let me down quick <laughs> Uh, I, I flew back to uh, Seattle just the other day, and uh, <laughs> here's kind of my hoity-toity ways. Like, I, I took the subway into town, and then like I take the monorail. It's like a very touristy sort of thing to do to like my areas because I can close by. And there's like a throng of young kids, probably like 16 to 19, on the monorail with me, and like I overhear like some of them saying like you know like concert or something, something, something. And my dumbass, like, I turned to one of them. I was like, oh, how was the concert you just went to? And they're like, no, we're going to it. It's like 830 at night. I was like, oh, God, this is getting <laughs> late. It's like, who's doing a, confer- a, a concert at 2 in the afternoon? Exactly. You know? <laughs> on, like, a Wednesday. I mean, unless like, it's no, like we're going to it. Festival. We're going to it. We're not getting home till 2 a.m., old man. <laughs> so do, does the monorail go all the way to the airport? Or do no, you, you I wish it did. It? It yeah. uh, goes, it's it's kind of the lamest monorail uh, around this side of Disney for sure. But like, it just goes from like downtown to uh, the touristy area. It's one stop, two, well, two stops technically. You've probably seen the monorail over in Irving. <laughs> it's pretty. No. It's pretty weird. Monorail? Yeah. yeah, it just goes around Las Colinas and it's like it goes from nowhere to nowhere. I don't think it has any riders. <laughs> Las Colinas also like. Uh, that they mysteriously have a canal system. Do they? Yeah, I mean, I know yeah. they have water. I didn't know it was from canals. Well, I mean, like you can ride like a, a Venetian boat, you know, a canal boat around Las Colinas should you want to. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's very elegant. Maybe we'll go on a date sometime. Who knows? Well, yeah, we can share a ride in a in a yeah. uh, gondola. I guess you'd call it gondola. Yeah. Uh, but I do got some stuff for you. It's going to be a mixed bag. You want to do some grab bag? Yeah, let's do some grab bag. And one of the things I'll say, uh, for the beauty of our, our guests is, or our, our listeners, I mean, I'll be um, I have no idea what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> so any reactions you see completely authentic because, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and I only know a little bit more than you do, honestly. So and that's pretty typical. Uh, I, well, it's a TikTok, and unfortunately it was taken down, but like the person was making the point of like, everything that you want is on the other side of embarrassment. So you can do things and like, you can be afraid that people are going to make fun of you and this sort of stuff, which, you know, they probably yeah. do will because yeah. you're, you're doing something kind of weird, but they also make the point that it's people that have made it over that hump that would not make fun of you. Because like they became the you know podcaster, they they became the photographer, they they went for a degree or whatever. While those other people that would never try it, they're the ones that's going to make fun of you. Yeah, 
Well, I, I think this is sometimes called like the beginner's mindset of, but I, I mean, I feel this personally. I don't know if you have, um, but yeah, like there, I, before I, I'd already kind of gotten over it somewhat when we started this podcast together, but I was mm-hmm. writing articles beforehand. And I mean, man, I was such a wuss. Like I was like, so whiny about it. I was like, are people going to make fun of me? I was like, <laughs> like I yeah, was yeah. so worried what people were going to say. And it's because I guess maybe I had been one of those people saying the negative things in the past. Cause uh, you know, I was a wuss, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, man, it's like you got to be in the arena. You got to get yourself out there and I guess get on the other side of embarrassment as this this person was saying. I kind of had this funny thing happen yesterday. Um, I'd be curious to see what you think about this. Yeah. I, was at, I was at this meeting. I'm not going to say what the name of it was or anything, but some of these people were talking. They're like, you know, I was like, man, listen to this, this podcast about like about directions like directionally correct i don't know any, any of you guys listen to it i'm like it's like i'm on it <laughs> yeah <laughs> listen that that's uh, the, the funny thing is i guess people don't know who we are but like they're just like talking about it out in the real world i thought i thought that was funny that's super cool like you hear about it in the wild yeah and i guess you get to hear about it you know like how people really feel because they don't know who you are yeah did they drop any nuggets i get no feedback no i think they were talking about um like employee listening or whatever but i mean we've had a few guests on that talked about that topic so but i think it was more just like hey have you guys heard of this thing oh well that's that's super cool just you know get a little uh listenership or whatever um but i I think i think you're absolutely right about like trying to start things at the very beginning like the spotlight effect or fallacy is real a you know in the sense is that, that the whole like you drop your keys below the street light thing or is that something else i don't know what that means well there's like the you always hear it's like oh you see the the person searching for their keys under a street light and i and they say oh did you drop your keys here and they say no i dropped them over there but the light's right here is that the spotlight effect or is that something that, else that sounds like a joke right it's like a i don't know I don't know what you would call it, like a adage, a parable or something. You hear a lot about it and I don't know, you go to a conference, people anyway, act like I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm making the point that, okay, I'll make a broader point. Everyone like lives life as if it's a movie. Like I am yeah. the star of my movie like and show. like everyone else is kind of supporting cast and you got these people that are like, Oh, it's an NPC over here at their desk job. And like this person over here and like, Oh, here comes Cole. And he's like another player in my movie. And everyone is looking at me because I am the star of my movie. No, <laughs> no, yeah. no one cares about you at all is, is the real point. That's the spotlight fallacy. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're none of us are on the Truman show. At least I don't think we are, but, uh, but yeah, like I love this term. I'm not a video gamer, but I I've, I guess I've only heard it briefly. But <laughs> is it like a diss to call somebody an NPC? And what does that stand for again? Uh, non-playable character. So in uh, I don't know Grand Theft Auto or it, all, all these video games, they make these like massive sort of maps, and they got they need things to fill it, right? So you got all yeah. these automatons that walk around and they'll do things, and but they have like no minds. And I don't, I don't know if it's a diss to call someone an NPC. It definitely is. It's definitely not positive. Yeah. But it's also 
just kind of referring to someone like has like no real consciousness or thoughts of their own, I guess. Yeah. Which I mean, it's probably most of us, but I, I wonder, so this is sort of a, sort of a HR question. Do you think there's a, like a certain percentage of people in an organization that should be NPCs for a company to be successful or like, should they have zero? I don't think the number is zero for sure. Like you have to have some people that just come in and like do their jobs and go home. But like how many, you know? Oh, well, I mean, it, it depends. Put the IO hat on, right? Yeah. In, in the sense of like, it depends on the function and like what you're trying to do. Like you don't really want a, you, you would want a really creative group of people uh, developing, um, uh, I don't know, user interfaces or some sort mm -hmm. of product facing thing. You don't want a whole lot of creative accountants that are yeah. out there like being mm -hmm. real avant-garde about how they do things. You need some with, with the budget. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The people just kind of follow the rules. They know the rules and this sort of thing. I wouldn't, they're not necessarily NPCs though. Is it, I think it's. Maybe I, maybe I don't understand the concept, but that's fine. You know, I'm old. I, yeah, maybe it is just a, the massive diss of like you're someone just existing in society, but you offer no real value because you have no money your own. <laughs> you offer no value. It's like, yeah, well, no, it's not mean. It's not mean at all. <laughs> it's also scary just how much of our day is automatic processing. Like quite literally the alarm goes yeah. off and like I, I have my routine. I go straight to the shower. Actually, I go get a big old glass of water and I go straight to the shower. I get out. I usually go to the living room watch something on TV for like 10 minutes, yeah. get dressed, you know, something like that. Well, I so definitely feel like just... I'm, it's so much worse in a remote environment because like, I feel like months yeah. just go by, like weeks used to go by in the office. And it's a lot of that routinization. Um, the plus side is like, I don't, I don't ever feel like I have really long days anymore, which is interesting. You don't feel like you have long days because it is just so, routine for you now like it just the days start melting away this sort of thing i'm not sure i mean it's it's definitely the melting away part i'm not sure why it feels like it's melting away or it's like the commute it, you just don't have the commute well it's not just the commute though like i remember being in an office and, and and like things feeling like wow this is like i can i could count the seconds till the end of this day i don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel that very often anymore like days just seem to fly by Oh, oh, I'll tell you my first job out of uh, master's level. I wasn't being paid very much at all. And they didn't really have a whole lot for me to do at times. Uh, I, I've now learned that you need to like raise your hand and like find your own work and, you know, try and uh, it, it makes the, your world a whole lot more interesting if you do it that way. But I broke down my salary based on five minute increments on the clock, like how much I was paid and like <laughs> one day like i worked it out to how much i was being paid for like five minute block and i was like yeah there's another 75 cents you know what whatever it was Ching, ching. yeah <laughs> it's no way to live it's no way to live it'd be fun to break down the number of minutes we spent on this podcast and <laughs> oh <my laughs> how much we're being paid for that it's like oh my god we're getting paid you know one cent an hour <laughs> negative sometimes yeah probably uh i don't know i think we probably exhausted that for what it's worth uh but yeah go out no one really cares about you so go do whatever you want i think is the whole plan right 
I actually kind of love that. It's very liberating. It, it's super yeah. liberating. Like it, it, it's kind of like if you uh, started a new school, you know, like in in like high school or something like that. It's like you can be a completely different person at the new school, right? You you don't have to like why why you know be you could be the crazy hat guy. You wear crazy hats. That's who you are. Now. <laughs> uh, two things, just because you mentioned that, and they're they're very related. Um, when I my my given name is Matthew, but when I started master's program. I didn't know anybody. I started going by Scott. I always wanted to go by Scott. That's how I started going by Scott. Wait, is Scott not your name? No. No. Like at not. all? Like not even a middle name? Oh, it is my middle name, yes. Oh, okay. I was like, because that would be really outrageous. If you're like, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm Matthew, Samuel, Hines. Uh, <laughs> people call me Scott. <laughs> but like now I can differentiate uh, my childhood friends from, you know, more adult post-college friends by what they call me so how do you feel about this for people like other people not yourself obviously but that like a person who like changed their name from being like you know Susie to susan in their life and then like later in life they're like well i actually i go by susan now like how do you react to that i mean you, you can do whatever you want you know <laughs> well, yeah you, obviously. You, you can do that, but people that are like militant about their name, yeah, like, I don't know, get over yourself. Like, it, it's Tara, not Tara. It's like, okay, yeah. okay, sh sh yeah. shut up. I'm gonna start going by Cole. It's not Cole anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an yeah. apostrophe. <laughs> yeah, just put a little tilde on the end of it. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just. Yeah. Leave people alone. Stop making life difficult for other people. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like uh, if you don't have a hobby, one will be assigned to you. Like uh, yeah. you'll you'll find something interesting to you know quibble over, even if you know there's nothing. Pe people will call you whatever the fuck they want to call you. So yeah. <laughs> get ready for it. You need to be ready for it. Well, let's do some more grab bag. This thing is uh, called. How complex systems fail. I, I've brought this up to you before. We've never talked about it on the pod. It's really interesting, densely packed article on uh, org change. And it has, I believe, like 18 points. But I want to kind of bring up like eh, the first 10 or so. Uh, so, so talking about compl complex systems are inherently hazardous systems. Can I, can I ask where it comes from just real quick? Like what is uh, Let's see. Yeah, it's a article. Let's see if I can find the actual. It's Cook 2009. I don't see a journal associated with it. We can put a link in there, though. Okay. It's, it's on ResearchGate. Cool. But uh, it's talking about complex systems. So you're talking about transportation, healthcare, power generation, mm -hmm. organizations, whatever you want to talk about. But complex systems are, are inherently hazardous systems. So they, they face hazards all the time. Uh, they are heavily and successfully defended against failure. So yeah. think about these things such as uh, backup systems. You don't want like data to be leaked, this sort of thing. Uh, you train your employees. You institute policies and procedures so you essentially avoid failures. Uh, catastrophe requires multiple failures. So a single point of failure is not enough. Like So one person mm -hmm. cannot destroy a system. Yep. Uh, you need a like, cascade of these sort of things. Uh, the complexity of the system makes it impossible for them to run without multiple flaws being present. So there's always some sort of flaw in the system just because yeah. of like the complexity of it. 
And because of this, complex systems run in degrade mode. They're always broken. Complex yeah. systems are always broken. It's really wild. But you could say like the brokenness is a feature, not a bug. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. Especially when you're trying new things, right? Or you're trying to correct mm -hmm. errors, this sort of thing. Um, catastrophe is always just around the corner. They occur at any time. Because mm -hmm. you're always uh, susceptible to it. Because they're like really high variance too, you know? Yes. Now, here we go. Here's, here's the sort of stuff that I really wanted to kind of get to. Uh, Post-accident attribution uh, to root cause is fundamentally wrong. There is no isolation of the root cause of an accident. Uh, only jointly are these causes sufficient to create an accident. So there's no single one root cause. Once again, you need a cascading failure for something to go wrong. Yeah, if there's no... Uh, I mean, it's like the economy, right? Like Yeah. <laughs> like no single thing can help fix the economy, but no single thing can bring it down either. <laughs> Except for maybe housing. <laughs> Let's say housing could bring down the whole economy. Uh, okay, now here we go. Hindsight bias, uh, post-accident assessments of human performance. Knowledge of the outcome makes it seem like the events leading up to the outcome should have appeared more salient to practitioners at the time than it was actually the case. All right, so like... Oh, you should have known this was going to happen. But yeah. here's, here's point 10. Uh, all practitioner accidents are gambles. The overt failure often appears to have been inevitable to the practitioner uh, acting in a blunder, deliberate, uh, willingful disregard for certain impending failure. But all practitioner actions are actually gambles. You don't know what's actually going to happen. In fact, most people are just acting in good faith, right? They're trying yeah. to do something good. And I would actually argue, because I, I don't know if it's related to this article, but I've seen like within complex systems, one of the things that denotes a complex systems is emergent things like emergent behaviors or emergent yeah. outcomes that you would have never predicted. And so how can you how could you ever hold someone accountable if something was completely emergent and out of their control? Totally emergent, out of their control. And I mean, I think that's the beauty of the complex system. That's why you get people together because you can produce more than any individual can do on their own, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, it also it also highlights the fact that um, people are trying their best at their jobs, right? And they're not, and they're, they're not trying to mess things up. And this, this article is essentially saying they can't do it on their own anyway. Yeah, I, I guess... Well, like even within a complex system, there are things that are simple systems that, <laughs> you know, you can mess up. Yes. Um, but it shouldn't bring down the whole system, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I so mean, you like, can be there held be... accountable for like things within your control. It's just this, you know, grandioso system that you can't be held accountable for. But it is interesting to see when organizations try to do this, you know? And they're, they're like, well, yeah, you know, you're responsible for this business unit and therefore it's your, your, your fault. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. Or like you, you create a product and like, you know, it doesn't, or it causes some sort of harm or damage. Uh, yeah. The, the blame lays at your feet, but it's like, yo, like this had several checks and balances. You know, there, there's y'all to decide the program to set this up we were trying to execute it. I mean, there's multiple things that had to happen for that to occur, right? No one yeah. person can make these sort of like unilateral decisions. In order. Well, I know this probably seems unrelated, but it makes me think of that um, 30 for 30 on Steve Bartman. I think we talked about it with mm -hmm. uh, 
with the um, Daniel a few weeks ago because they talk about the concept of scapegoating and like in a complex system. Obviously, what happened in that circumstance of him catching the thing at the Cubs game, but there was like this whole complex system of things that interacted, but they blamed this one person and they ended up being the scapegoat that, you know, everybody got, you know, to feel enlightened because they hate this one dude. And I feel like that happens in organizations all the time, too. Oh, it definitely does. And because uh, it, it, it's easy, it's easy to point mm-hmm. to one person and be like, you're bad, you're evil. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, that person's we're all unless, unless they were acting unethically or yeah. deliberately trying to sabotage, which. I'm sure it occurs, but probably very, very rarely. Yeah, but you got a whole complex system of NPCs interacting <laughs> with each other. And it's like you just pick one out of the crowd and you're like, it's your fault. It's like, no, it's not. They're non-player, whatever you call them. Here, here are two more. Uh, change introduces new forms of failure. So those emergent properties that you were talking about, great. But now we have <laughs> new issues to deal with, i.e. like, I don't know, Gen AI. Yeah. Uh, great. It's a great new tool. What are the implications of it? We don't well, know right now. It's all a gamble. Something could go very, very wrong. I mean, isn't that like the, I feel like it's a complex system in multiple levels. Like just yeah. the way that it works just itself is a complex system, but then it's introduction into different facets of the economy also and in organizations. Like if some teams are using others or not, Maybe it gets turned on for certain, you know, software providers and then others don't. And it's like all these different, you know, variables are are being like levers are being pulled to flip a variable in the equation to like now it's generative AI. Mm-hmm. It, it's it and because that can create because aren't aren't complex systems because of the high variance, they can be very unstable at times too, right? Oh, absolutely. Once again, like there's a catastrophe lurking at every mm-hmm element and like there's all sorts of different ways it can fail uh here's just a couple more views of cause limit the effectiveness of defense against future events so once again like you isolate one root cause not not so much uh people continuously create safety so they're continually trying to develop defenses uh failure free operations require expertise with failure so you need to fail to actually create Good systems, kind of like those, uh, uh, like hackers that the government hires to now be what the white hat hackers. White hat, yeah, yeah, yeah. We you got to have failures required to create fail safes or something like that. Yeah, That's I mean, like you, more clever in my head. <laughs> well, like you need to fail to learn, right? You need yeah. to. You can't just be perfect out the gate. Yeah. I.e. get over your uh, spotlight effect. Get out there. Try something. Yeah. We're not all in the spotlight, except for when we are. <laughs> you want to know who is in the spotlight is actors. Are they? Like movie actors. This is a uh, article by Timothy Judge. It's older. 2014. But the study found that on the average, the average earnings per film for female movie stars peaks around age 34 and then decreases rapidly. Whereas uh, male movie stars earnings peak around age 51 and remain stable thereafter. Unless you're Meryl Streep. (laughs) Yeah, there there are definite outliers here. Uh, Gender moderates relationship between age and earnings such that earnings decrease with age for females, blah, 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 blah. But boy, it's wild. Like the actual earning potential for females kind of peaks out like 
mid thirties. Well, I, I think it, it kind of comes to like, what do you want to be known for? Right. Like if like to use Meryl Streep as an example, it's like, she's just a, one of the most brilliant actresses in history, but she was, I mean, she's obviously a beautiful and elegant woman, but she wasn't getting by because of her look. She was getting by because of her talent. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, some people do get by early in their career just because, you know, they're just fantastic looking. And, and like, then that diminishes over time just as everybody gets older. And so it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do now? It's like, well, we're going to look for either some, you know, younger people with looks, or we're going to look for some people <laughs> with talent. The, the arc is the arc for an actor, but the whole actor's life is a really fascinating realm. Like, Mm-hmm. One, they have to like you to put you into the movie. And like you're constantly on these sort of like nine, six, nine month contracts where you're constantly trying to, you know, hunt for new sort of things. And then like at the very beginning, you play like the teenager. And then like mm-hmm. you move into like the college friend. And then like you move into like the mom. And then you move into like the teenage dad. And then like you're. <laughs> like and that's if you're wildly successful too yeah like, oh yeah if you're oh oh yeah don't even start with like did you get picked for anything in the first place yeah like these are I mean, these are people are 99 percent of people who do it never get picked for anything <laughs> uh, it's kind of a wild um i was actually thinking about this earlier have you ever you ever heard of the book the world is flat by thomas Fr- tom friedman i think is his name i see these people on twitter all the time but no um, so <laughs> I, I, I just <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sir. No, uh, he wrote it, um, a while ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago. They made us read it my first semester in graduate school. And the whole concept is like, don't get comfortable. You're no longer competing against like the person down the street. You're competing against every human being in the world who has ambition and drive because of the yeah. internet. Yeah. And I feel like acting is very much like that. It's like, you're not just competing to be like the most beautiful person in your town. You're competing against every beautiful person in the world just to be in, in this type of environment. It's like very feast or famine. Boy, that is true. Like trying to do community theater in your town is one thing. Trying to go out to Hollywood and make it is a totally different one. Right. Very much so. Do you know a uh, Jeremy Piven actor? He was a he was the entourage he was, guy. Yeah, right? Ari, Ari and Entourage, and he's yeah. been in like many many other things. Um, but I saw an interview with him, and he he said that what differentiated him from other people that were auditioning is that he would memorize his lines going into the audition. Other people would like get the script there and like try and wing it, kind of like I'm doing right now with this <laughs> sort of with this thing. But he would like memorize it and like you know come up with like his own like take on the character and like go in there and that would impress like that would impress them in the sense of like oh this guy already like knows his lines this sort of stuff and he got a lot of parts that way. Well, and he kind of he plays like I don't know if it's typecasting or not, but he definitely plays like the jerk asshole really well. <laughs> so you know that that probably helped it also. He, he, Definitely played Ari very well. I think he was in uh, some college movie. Where he played like a dean or something like that. I, I first saw him in Singles, a great uh, movie about Seattle. I've never uh, seen it. I also saw like a someone was talking about the music industry. So back in the day, like the band Oasis, 
the mm-hmm. Gallagher brothers, I think that's what they're called. Yeah. Complete assholes. They'd come into a studio, destroy it. You know, you say like, hey, come to the photo shoot. And like, maybe they show up. Maybe they show up four hours late and like drunk <laughs> and like, you know, they cuss you out. And like, I mean, that's rock they- and roll, baby. Yeah. rock and roll baby you come on stage like 40 minutes late and the crowd's like you know irritated this sort of stuff yeah and <laughs> essentially those people are not around anymore those sort of rock stars are not around they the record industry would rather have like harry styles some guy that will not get drunk will show up on time will you know play well uh, do what they're told uh, ostensibly and essentially, they're dependable. They're conscientious, which is exactly what you want in a workforce a lot of times, too. Like, can I count on you to show up and not destroy my building or studio? Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's like a pendulum there where you swing, you know, to crazy rock star on one end to highly dependable person on the other end. And I wonder if it'll ever swing back to crazy, you know, rock star again. I think you need some infusion of like that sort of like... Yeah. Cause you could make an argument. Music sucks more now. Too. Yeah. That's, that's where I was going to go. Like you need an infusion <clears throat> of creativity that you only get from uh, <laughs> a non NPC mind as it were. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you need that kind of crazy, brilliant, aberrant, divergent person to be, you know, I mean, I think mu- music is a beautiful thing. It kind of communicates back to you kind of like, what you really know, but what you haven't maybe consciously recognized. And, you know, you need somebody who has a really deep perspective to do that effectively because they're kind of tricking you. You know, they're like tricking you with like these sounds and words to like feel something that you wouldn't have felt otherwise. I had like a revelation recently around like the music industry and bands in general. And Essentially, each band is a business and they need to run it as such. You cannot yep. have someone that is heroin, you know, or mm-hmm. drunk all the time, this sort of stuff. You need someone to show up because that's your moneymaker. That's that's how you get paid. And or like, they better I, be really good. <laughs> they, oh, they better be really good. Uh, I, I, I saw a band probably like two months ago, a biggie, bigger touring band with like uh, other bands you've heard of. And Who was it? Well, it was uh, Smashing Pumpkins and Stone Temple Pilots. Okay. And like, I, I just like got, I, I was like sitting there watching them. I was like, this is their business. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is how, this is their business. They don't want to mess with, because Stone Temple Pilots fired, oh, I can't remember his name. Their, their old uh, lead singer that eventually died, whatever his name yeah, was. Yeah, I was like, I thought he died. He they died, but they, they got some like British guy. I think he's British, but mm-hmm. they, they were awesome, honestly. Yeah. But I was like, wow. Yeah, this is, this is how they make money. They don't want to mess this up. I mean, yeah, I, I, I totally get that. And you really start to see, like, that's also kind of when I fall out of love with yeah. the, the band. It's when you can tell they're doing it just to, like, pay their mortgage, not because they're, like, passionate about what they're doing anymore. But I do have a question about it. So when you saw the concert, was it at 2 p.m. in the afternoon or 8 p.m. at night? <laughs> I think it probably ended about 10 p.m. Yeah, definitely. There you go. Definitely. Uh, let's see. Anything else that's pressing? Here's one just kind of interesting. There's a wave of IOs entering uh, master's level programs, like kind of unprecedented amount of enrollees. Really? Well, how did you find that out? I mean, how, how would we even know? Uh, we got an article here from Fortune Magazine. 
uh, do, do, do master's degree programs in psychology are seeing a wave of new applicant. Here's why. Here, I'll just go down. Why? Yeah, I want to know um, why. Do, do, do a path to accreditation when the driving reason is big jump in enrollment a regent university uh, according to some 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 so apparently io has been accredited by the apa now it wasn't before <laughs> i don't know i'm trying to skim this real hard yeah uh, in 2019 apa formed a task force to explore pathways to accreditation on master's level so apparently phd was already accredited oh hmm. that's why i, I would assume masters were too but uh I would have too, but uh, we got brought. I thought they were going to say just like there's a high demand for the skill or something, and that's why more people are going into it. Broader career growth and post-pandemic shift as people just kind of want something to do. Yeah, that's fair. I have something kind of related. I was thinking about uh, talking about in the nerdery, but it. Um, I'll just sh share it now. Um, I saw this thing that. Uh, shows ceos predict full return to office by 2026 did you see this no did not see this so i i it's it's a, a research report from kpmg and actually i think it might be a little clickbaity because if you i, I looked at the research report and it it was not as salacious kind of as this headline but they surveyed 1300 global ceos and 64 percent of them predict full return to office so this is like five days a week in office all the time and 90% of U.S. executives said they're likely to link this to financial rewards like bonuses, promotions, and office attendance. So basically, you know, all the people who said that there's a new normal, you know, post-pandemic, nope, we're going back to the old normal, and it will be exactly like it was before. And uh, I, I thought that, that this is really a, a curious finding. Well, I mean, like, once again, it's a complex system that's ever evolving and changing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, you but know, you know how you change a system? Change the incentives, right? And so they said they would likely link this to rewards. Well, guess what? You'll change people's behavior pretty quickly if, uh, and, and it's not even that quick. They say 2026. So that's still three years away. So you have three years to change the incentives to change the complex system. And I think those incentives have always been there, if not, um, and it's sort of like or muted during the yeah, pandemic like implicitly not explicitly sometimes as far as you know as much as people want to say that like well you can uh, work effectively and we're going to rate you just as well if you're uh, remote there's still something to be said about seeing the boss in the office and them seeing you and you being able to communicate effectively with your coworkers and get answers quickly and just having these sort of side conversations all this sort of stuff that is just impossible, impossible yeah. in a remote environment. Out of sight, out of mind phenomena, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. When you develop LMX with your boss, like all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Technology's got to get better. Maybe the tech bros can help. Tech bros. We need a little VR glasses, right? I wonder. I mean, just let it happen. It sounds like it's, you know, the technology is finally here to do it <laughs> effectively. What if we sent VR goggles to every one of our guests and we did all of our podcasts in VR? Wouldn't that be crazy? I mean, yeah, that would be crazy. That'd be <laughs> really wild. <laughs> I meant it in the colloquial way. You meant it in the, yes, that would be crazy. You want to hear some news of the weird? We'll do it quick, sure. quickly. Uh, this, it's uh, attacks by students made medieval Oxford a murder hotspot, researchers find. 
University of City had been uh, had between four and five times the number of murders as London or York uh, in the same time period, according to a study. So the reason was you got all these kids that are essentially males, 14 mm-hmm. to 19 years old in this small town. And they develop, uh, they have access to bars and prostitutes and this sort of stuff. And they start murdering people. And, and they don't have those in London? They didn't have as much just because of the concentration of these sort of like roving bands of uh, teenage boys. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing quite as dangerous as, you know, a bunch of <laughs> young boys with nothing, <laughs> idle hands. You know, like, let's, uh, let's not do that. Here you go. It's estimated that the homicide rate in rate in late medieval Oxford based on 700 year old coroner's, uh, inquest, uh, about 60 to 75 per hundred thousand people, 50 times higher than the current rates in 2021 English cities. But what I, what I found like really interesting about this is they have a medieval murder map. So <laughs> they have a map of all the murders that took place in these like old towns based on, you know, I guess reports, what have you. And where they took place so you can actually kind of peruse them imagine it being that person who had to put that together that had to be a sucky job i think <laughs> so track. i would love that you would love to have to comb through like newspaper articles for months and years and decades and then find the times that murder was mentioned and find on a map and put it on the map and do all this manually that sounds awful I am fascinated by maps. I'm okay. Okay, here, here, I'll give you a little. I'm not talking about the map portion. I'm talking about the digging portion. Well, I mean, this is this is like uh, conducting a um, combining a bunch of articles together, meta analysis, combining a meta analysis, finding all the articles, doing the lit review of this sort of stuff. But like, once you found it, like plotting it on a map, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, maybe this is an individual difference between you and I. I think this is because like whenever I go to. like an, uh, an old city, like you go to London, you walk around, you're like, uh, you know, that the Tower of London, you know, that was built like in 1200. That's freaking mm-hmm. amazing. Buckingham Palace is, uh, pardon me, um, uh, Big Ben, that's probably 1890 sort of thing. Oh, we got this Roman wall that was built like pre, you know, BC, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. This amazing sort of history. And I find myself walking around these like little streets and you're like, I bet someone's like murdered over there. I wonder what crazy stuff happened over there, you know? Yeah, over a long enough time period, you know? And I mean, the aliens built Stonehenge, so there's that and all the good stuff. I've gone on the, uh, well, I don't know I don't know about that, but I've uh, I've been on like the Jack the Ripper walking tour of London. Like, yeah, <laughs> some lady was murdered right there. There you go. There you go. <laughs> you can go lay on the ground next to it, get your photo taken, you know? <laughs> Do we, do we have a confusion matrix for today? <laughs> I think Cole's over it today. Yeah, it's not. You, you lost me on the map thing. Sorry. How you, you're not fascinated by this? You're not fascinated. I'm fascinated by, by the output of the map. I would not like to be the person who had to do it, like the the groundwork to make it happen. What if you had an assistant? That that would be ideal. That see, just someone someone to go find. Like, here's a list of all the murders. Yeah, that would be great. I'd even go on the tour. Of all the murders, you know? I just don't want to be the person who has to go through all the newspaper articles. (laughs) All right, let's talk about this uh, article. Uh, Noises is the secret destroyer of productivity. 
It's a secret destroyer because it impacts cognition, not effort. So we just don't notice. But a 10 decibel noise increase, say that's about what a dishwasher does, but you know, mm-hmm. it could be up to like a vacuum, lowers productivity by 5%. Noise is also greater in poorer neighborhoods. Uh, one more thing. Noise really hurts detailed work. With a little bit of noise, software engineers find fewer bugs, pro- productivity dips, and uh, many tasks are disrupted. So I got, I got a question related to this. Yeah. How close, like how cheap would an apartment have to be if it were for you to live in it if he was right next to, I'm saying like, let's say you're a college student, so you don't have like yeah. infinite amount of money. For you to live right next to like an interstate or a train track or something that's like high decibels, like would it have to be like half the price or, you know, a third of the price is kind of like a conjoint analysis sort of. I don't know what the threshold is, but I do know my own behavior. And yeah. when I lived in Ruston, I lived near the doghouse. So near the railroad, railroad tracks. Track. Yeah. And it took about. 18 months to get used to the train going by really? two, three in the morning. See, I lived near there and I got to this point where I couldn't hear the train anymore. And it was fast. Like maybe really, yeah. Like, like I legitimately, it could just be going by and I would like, my brain had just tuned it out. I didn't hear it anymore. And you have people over and they're like, God, that train's loud. I'm like, what train? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe it's like the smoke detector where some people just it don't is. hear it. Some people yeah. just don't hear it or you just get used to it. This sort of thing. I, I will say I did not have a brick house there. It was a wood house. So you, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of sound comes through, et cetera. But boy, that's fascinating that you just like habituate to the train. Yeah. You kind of get that way with small children too, with crying. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, we had a, uh, a uh, pendulum clock and I'd have friends over and they'd be like, this noise is driving me crazy. Just like the TikTok, never heard it. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think it's just once you tune it out, it's hard to tune it back in. Like it's easy to tune it in if you've never tuned it out, but like once you tune it out, <laughs> it's like, it's gone forever. Well, what are the kids biggest complaints right now? Like what, what, what are they getting on you about that? Uh, you need to do. I mean, they don't really complain. They're great. Or, okay. Um, what, what do they fuss about that you can tune out? Yeah, they just go through the little stages of growth and everything. Um, and, you know, when they get really ornery and stuff and like, nah, I don't want to, you know, they don't like, they don't, they're not good at communicating when they're small. Yeah. Right? So they communicate through crying, but sometimes it's like, you know, well, we're going to school anyway, <laughs> you know, even if you're, you don't want to be there. So yeah. this is, this is happening. Boy, I tell you this, like work from home truly extended down to the lower levels of the family now. I mean, that would, I mean, that's kind of weird to, well, anyway, let's change subject. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, da, 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 da. This was, this article was passed to me by, no, I won't go down that route. It's from a, the journal of applied economics, 2009 and uh, the peer effects in the workplace evidence from random groupings and professional golf tournaments. So the background is the paper examines peer effects in the workplace by looking at professional golf tournaments. Golfers are randomly assigned into these, like, you know, foursomes, this Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And they're essentially looking, do they rub off on each other? Can I improve my score by being paired with someone better? Uh, The (laughs) you won't believe this, but no, 
No, being paired with a better golfer does not improve your score. And this was presented to me as uh, proof that there's no contagion between peers. Yeah. Yeah, like that's... I kind of get the why you went the direction of <laughs> why you don't want to talk about who sent it to you and why. Um, but I, I feel like those two things could be mutually exclusive from one another. Like, is golf a high fidelity comparison to working in an office? Probably no. not. No. Is how you gauge performance in golf similar to how performance is engaged? You know, and no, like, Golf is really easy. You know what the score is at all times. What's the score in the office? I don't know. Right? Yeah. And then the last thing is like golf is, I mean, it's famously known as being one of the few non-team sports. Right? So it's an independent sport, whereas most work in an office is team and collaboration based. Right? There's interdependencies. It's a complex system. Golf is not a complex system. Mm -hmm. It is a simple system. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's pretty... (laughs) And that was just off the top of my head. It's pretty easy to pick apart why this was dumb. I think that that was a really good, succinct analysis of all the limitations of this sort of article here. Uh, Can I I go to the other direction, though, though? Yeah, please do. I like golf. Um, I had never heard of this study, but I was always curious about this because when I watch golf, sometimes a lot of times you'll be watching, and I I was always curious, like, is this random or is this like a real thing? A lot of times you'll see pairings and all guys in the pairing are crushing it that day or all guys in the pairing are having a really bad day together. And I always wonder, does that feed off each other? And it sounds like it doesn't necessarily. Is that a fair conclusion from what they said in the article? Yes. So you you do not see a increase in your score based on previous, uh, I guess like handicap, this sort of stuff from a different golfer. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of like confounds there too. Like, uh, four players put together all teeing off relatively at the same time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's gusty winds at that time or, you know, bright sun. I don't know. All these sort of things that could also influence people scoring similarly. Yeah. But like in the tournaments I'm watching, they all go off at relatively the same time, same condition, same course. So a lot of those things are somewhat controlled for in terms of the variance, like a shotgun start. Yeah, exactly. And so it is like, it's very rare that and, and and so I was talking about when you see, watch people playing on TV, but um, in, even in a, like a personal grouping, like when I'm on the course, it's very rare that you just see, like if you have a guys that are all roughly equivalent in golf, like one guy's just crushing it that day, but everybody else is sucking or the vice versa of that. Like usually everybody's playing well or everybody's playing poorly. And so I, again, I didn't know if there was some kind of statistical artifact there. Uh, apparently no, according to this article, it's all, it's all ugh, pardon me. It also reminds me of the hot hand research where people think they're like, Oh, they're hot. They're hot. And but it's not No, but you're not, you're not as the song goes, as it goes. As it goes, ma'am. Well, do you mind if I talk about an article, kind of nerdery-esque? I, I think you should. I, I think okay. I've talked way too much today. Well, so we've got uh, some of our previous guests, and I guess this came out in that special episode or special episode of P Psych that we've referenced a few times now. Um, but Emily and Michael Campion wrote an article about machine learning applications to personnel selection 
current illustrations, lessons learned and future research. And uh, it's really good. Like I, I actually, I read the article <laughs> um, and, and, and there's so much in here. It's, it's kind of hard to summarize because they go through five different areas, but they brought up one or two things that I wanted to get your perspective on because you're a little closer to this than me. One is they said that one of their critics, they were broadly, I would say very pro what some of the stuff that's being done to research machine learning in the selection context. But one of the things they said that they, that a lot of folks leave out is the concept of reliability. So, you know, when we get trained as psychologists, you learn a lot about reliability and validity. Yes. And they're saying a lot of times machine learning completely leaves out the concept of reliability over time. And that, that was one of the criticisms. And then the other was, um, sorry, I'm just trying to find it really quick. No worries. Um, it was, Here, I'll, uh, I'll riff on that just for a second while you're trying okay, to find Okay. Yeah. It. You riff on it while I'm trying to find this. Uh, well, I, I guess there's more, more questions than real answers here. I, I assume that they're saying that like they would retrain the model, you know, every couple months or whatever. And then ostensibly you would have a new training set that would produce new results. You would, in theory, pr predict new people to be, <laughs> we'll call it moved on to the hiring process as opposed to like strictly hired, which is really dangerous, really, really dangerous. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not as close. To, I used to be pretty close to this earlier in my career. I was, I'd call myself sort of a quasi data scientist. And one of the things that you would find or I would find running models is a lot of times you'd, you'd create a really, you know, highly predictive model and then you'd run it on new data sets and yeah. prediction quality would vastly diminish even if you'd done you know multiple cross validations all the good stuff right um, over so, overfitting overfitting yeah, your model overfitting and so I, I i i'm thinking they're talking about sort of like the problems with overfitting but maybe when you're training a model needing you know four or five data sets before you can you know make a claim of hey this is a really effective model because it is lacking kind of that um that reliability that you would need in in a, yeah, a yeah. typical you know psychological study you need a lot of data for these sort of things too like this isn't something that a company of i don't know i, I don't know what the actual terms would be but like a thousand people with a variety yeah. of different jobs uh say you're hiring for 10 people total like yeah. this is not something that you want to do by any means. Uh, and like not, not to like kind of steal your thunder, but I, I, I saw um, a, a recent post by Santiago who we, we've talked about some of his stuff on about yeah. uh, he's posted before. And he essentially said that like a lot of people's first urge is to create an ML model, mm -hmm. which, Hey, great. You know, it's the hot thing. You produce accurate results, this sort of thing. What you should really do is start with like some heuristics. And then that gives you a baseline to compare against a ML model later, but it's also a lot simpler. Like we want in from a IO perspective, we want someone with these qualities, <laughs> like very yeah. simple. And then like you can make a more complex her heuristic, like adding different elements. And then once you have enough sort of these sort of things where it becomes unwieldy, then you can move on to some, something more sophisticated, like an ML model. Well, you didn't realize, but that's actually the segue into the second point I wanted to talk to you about, which is one of their recommendations, and this was the second highest recommendation, was use the simplest necessary ML models that you yes. can. Yes. And there's, the, to, at least for, to me, from kind of the outside, there seems to be ongoing debate about this. Whereas like, 
I feel like the IO types, the scientist types are always looking for explainability. And, and then like the data science or computer science types are always looking for what they call alpha, where you're just like, we don't care about explainability. We'll, we'll, we'll make a deep learning model. No, I'll predict everybody. We don't care if we understand how it works. And, and so I'm curious what, what your perspective is on, I mean, it sounds like we already got your perspective, but can you, can you kind of paint both sides of it? Can I paint both sides? Like, okay. So the, we'll, we'll call it data scientist perspective is mm -hmm. a theoretical where like, and they have a valid point. Like at the end of the day, you look at the model and you say like, look at that R squared. We're explaining a lot of the variance. Our predictive ability is fantastic. Uh, and you look at this other model, we'll call it the IO model. It's like, not as good as far as like the predictive power, this sort of stuff, but they can't explain why it's working. Why are these people better for this job, etc.? At least I always can say like, well, we wanted these characteristics in mm -hmm. these people because the heuristics you mentioned earlier, the heuristics, and we can tell you why we input these sort of things into the model and why if uh, the job changes, we could shuffle them in and out and it will still work as opposed to being just like purely results driven. No, I, I love that. And I think, and I, I believe the campions would agree with what I'm about to say is why they made the suggestion is selection is a high stakes environment where yes. interpretability for just legal defensibility, if nothing else, and I would call it just, you know, procedural and distributive fairness and, 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 you know, justice or whatever they call it. Um, like you, you got to know like why you were selected or not selected. It can't just be like, well, cause the magical algorithm said so like that, that just, that's not going to fly. And this is also why they, they probably suggested choosing the most, uh, um, the simplest model you can, because yeah, you mm -hmm. can make some like awesome predictions using, um, you know, neural network, this sort of stuff, but you can't explain why it happened, how it happened. And once again, you're going to need a lot of data, and that's probably going to necessitate across different functions, across different time zones, against geographic differences, all these sort of things that, you know, you can input, put into the model, but you don't know how it's really working at the end of the day. Correct. The job could be very, very different in different areas of the organization. Absolutely. Do you have any nerdery stuff you want to talk about? Oh, I kind of covered it all. Uh, okay. Oh, here I got I got one more. This isn't nerdering, but uh, you won't believe this, man. But a emotional support alligator was denied entry into a baseball stadium. The Philadelphia Phillies wouldn't let a guy come into the stadium with his emotional support alligator. This is wrong on so many levels. <laughs> like, uh, you ever been around an alligator? They're not providing a lot of emotional support. They're reptiles. I don't know. I think that's specious on your part, really. I mean, I'm. I think I'm okay being a speciesist or whatever. <laughs> I, I think that we've passed like the days of like the the wackiness, like on airplanes, like people bringing like a snake or like an ostrich, or this sort of stuff. But you never know. Were they doing that at one point? Yeah. Yes. Well, that shows how you know up to date I am. I saw this lady flying the other day with like a dog and like a little. It was like a piece of luggage, like specifically crafted to be like a cage for a dog. Mm -hmm. And like, I just happened to look over. I was in like a lounge somewhere and like, it's like, oh my God, there's a live animal in this. I was at this uh, outdoor restaurant the other day and it was, so the whole 
perk of this area because it had like probably 10 restaurants, but they're kind of in shacks or like little huts. And it like had a big dog park behind it. So it was like supposed to be like a really dog friendly area. Yeah. And this one restaurant had signs everywhere in it that said, no dogs in here, no dogs. <laughs> but then there were, then they had like other signs just outside. It's like dogs are allowed here. <laughs> you picked the wrong place to have like a no dog zone i think you'd be murdered in seattle or at least uh pilloried if uh you had like you expressed any sort of like anti-dog sentiment As i've never seen crazy stuff like i've heard people bringing dogs into the grocery stores and letting them ride in the cart and you know all this sort of stuff okay so i have a question about this actually yeah, yeah, yeah. this is dog park etiquette because i don't have a dog and mm, mm. because this restaurant wouldn't allow people to bring their dogs in, they just like went to the dog park and left their dogs. And well, then, so is that okay? <laughs> no, no, it, it's, it's not okay because I, I used to have a dog, unfortunately, RIP, greatest dog on earth. Mm -hmm. But you would have these dogs that would like attack other dogs. And you, that was a constant fear. Yeah. And you'd even like run across some owners that were there and they'd be like, Oh, they're just playing. Look at them playing. It's like, get your dog out of here. It's like it's literally yeah. attacking other dogs. But then imagine if they left their attacking dog <laughs> and went into a restaurant. I mean, like I get it. You want to bring your dog, but <laughs> it's not a, it's not a backyard. You can just leave the dog in either. Yeah. I was like, if first of all, first, I don't think it's acceptable at all to leave the dog, but if it were acceptable, What's the amount of time? Is it one minute? Is it yeah. what, like 30 minutes? Is it an hour? Can you come back like after work? <laughs> like, what's, what's the acceptable amount of time? Uh, kind of tangential to your previous point. Like uh, I, I was in Austin recently, Austin, Texas. And I wish there was a restaurant that just said like, no live music allowed here. <laughs> like everywhere you go it's like some freaking like folk singer like in the corner like jamming out on the guitar and you don't want to hear it it's like i'm just trying to eat man just come on <laughs> can i go somewhere and not hear freaking bad live music well yeah like there's there is such a thing as good live music and it's like i yes. like i don't need my restaurant to be your training wheels for your shitty music well like you're, you're there with like your friends like i came here to talk and eat with my friends it's like some guy, you know, going to town. And I will say, like, everyone in Austin is a great musician. It's not that. I mean, they're good. I just don't want to hear it. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. You want, like, a no music zone? <laughs> you're, you're not. You're definitely not breaking your career at uh, El Patio Mexican restaurant <laughs> at, at 11 a.m. I mean, Nashville is kind of like that, too, where it's just yes. everywhere you go, there's live music. I mean, it's good, you know? Like... But it's, it's good for a while. Yeah. Actually living in Austin where like you can't go anywhere is a pain. If you're visiting. Okay. It's, it's an intriguing. Yeah. I, I have a whole riff on Austin, but I won't get into it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested. I'm interested. I'm sure we will talk about it after we get done recording. <laughs> well, this has been fun. Uh, you've been listening to direction cracked uh, people in the podcast with Colin Scott and Colin Scott. That's it. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. 